our sermon this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear from the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I would imagine that many of you at different times in life, you have been quick to blame things on the devil. Why did you do this? The devil made me do it. Why did you listen to that kind of music? Well, the devil turned on the radio. Why did you do this or that? And in many ways, on the flip side, maybe some of you don't give the devil credit of much of anything. Maybe you don't see the devil for how powerful and how evil he actually is. Maybe you are negligent in ignoring Satan's schemes to distort and defame the glory of Christ. We'll see in our passage this morning how Jesus, the very Son of God, actually fought off the devil. How the devil showed up in his life and how he was led to say, be gone. Jesus is blameless in everything that he does. He does nothing wrong. So we would imagine that even in this picture, at this point in his life, what was he doing to remain blameless and sinless? Jesus is the true an obedient son, and that's the picture that Matthew is portraying to us, that not only is the Messiah here, but also the Messiah is perfect and obedient to the Father's will, even when Satan tempts him. To, to remind you, or to set the stage, if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, the beginning of Matthew chapter 3 has the person of John show up and announce that he is preparing the way of the Lord to such a degree that he is saying that the Lord is coming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he is the voice from the wilderness. Then we see just after this that Jesus finally is on the stage. He finally presents himself as the main character, not just of someone that we were hoping in, but now is in our very presence. We see at the end of chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism where he is identifying with the very people of whom he would later save and redeem by his own death on the cross. And it's there that the Spirit of God would descend on him. Not that he wasn't divine without the Spirit, but that here the Spirit is fueling him and encouraging him to do something. And we see that first act this morning. In chapter 4, the Father confirms him, and then we see something striking of what Jesus does next. And when you think of at the end of the baptism of Jesus, this, this really should be it, right? This should really, in our minds, be the end of the scriptures. 
Like the Messiah has come, he's confirmed by the Father, he's fueled by the very Spirit, he's announcing himself as identifying with sinners whom he later come to save. This is where the fireworks come up. This is where the halftime show would pale in comparison to what we would imagine happening here. But then what does Jesus do next? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness just isn't the tall grass behind your house, but the very place where people wouldn't think to start their ministry. I googled earlier this week ways to begin a ministry. Think of a college ministry, a women's ministry, plant a church, and none of those cases ever said, go into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. Jesus has a different agenda altogether from what we might press in on the scriptures, maybe what we might hope of him or want of him. Jesus has a different agenda. And so as we think about this, before I would go on in any part of the text, I just kind of want to, as it hit me this week, we would all recognize that COVID has changed so much in our lives already. And COVID-19 will probably forever in many ways in our lives change the rhythms of life, the rhythms of the church, the rhythm of your parenting, the rhythm of maybe even how you're educated from here on out. And I think it would be good of us to think of the future of EMB, where we are determined to do what Jesus was doing in this text. Jesus, more than anything, was determined to do the Father's will. So as the world in many ways has given us a reset knob or a reset button, May we be on our knees regularly as a church to, to just aim to do nothing else but the mere Father's will. Jesus had his Father's agenda and was filled with the Spirit this day. We see that when he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, he was fueled by the very power that the Spirit gave him. And, and this shows in our text through several ways we see in our text Jesus' manhood showing itself, Jesus's temptations as not overcoming him, Jesus's responses to those temptations, and also we see Jesus's great triumph at the end. Now to think about Jesus, Jesus's manhood, I'm not talking about his mere masculinity, or he could have drawn a sword, or yelled a certain way, or talked with a certain tone, but we recognize right at the beginning that Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days, and he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Now, I've never been in the wilderness longer than five days. The longest my dad and I ever backpacked was five days in Yellowstone, and it was awful. So the idea that it would go on many more times that, eight more times that, no way. But then, you know, we were able to eat food along the way and whine the whole time. Jesus never showed himself as whining and didn't even show himself as hungry. But he hadn't eaten and here, at the end of this, we see that he is hungry, and he is weary, and he is tired. This shows to us that he is a man who wouldn't be hungry after 40 days, who wouldn't be tired of sleeping on the ground after 40 days. We see him in maybe a weak spiritual state. You know, when you think of the Psalm 42, where there's a person there who is clearly spiritually oppressed, I heard one sermon on this where maybe an advice to people who were oppressed, eat well and drink well. Your body is a, is a machine in many ways. And we see here where Jesus is hungry. We see where he's alone. He has no command, companion beside him. But he wasn't on his own, we see, because it was the Spirit there in the first verse of chapter 4. It was the Spirit who led him out. 
We, we recognize that the Trinity, when we think about it as a doctrine or as a spiritual truth from the Scriptures, we see that the Trinity has the unity of God within it, that, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit had a company within themselves even outside of man. We recognize that in the beginning, there was already a relationship going on where the Father, Son, and Spirit were in good communion within themselves. But we recognize that this portrays Adam as a man, and it, it jumps out as a great contrast to, or we see that Jesus is recognized as a man, but it jumps out as a great contrast to the very person of Adam at the beginning of our, of our scriptures. You think of Adam in the garden, perfect conditions. You know, you might draw the Garden of Eden, and what would you do? A ton of green a ton of waterfalls, maybe even dinosaurs or animals all around. It's perfect. It's everyone's ideal zoo, right? With free food there. And Adam even had a perfect companion. And Eve, God saw it good to give Adam a companion. But there he was tempted. Maybe in the same way by how Jesus was tempted by mere food, where he, was, where he and Eve were told to take and eat. And here Satan would show up as a contrast to that. Or compare this to the state of Israel we see in the Old Testament where they were in the wilderness for 40 years. It's clear that Matthew is portraying this text as an anti of how, of how Israel was living and working. They were in the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, yet he never complained. And they were even given provision by God. They were given manna, yet they were given what should have been a world of contentment, yet they complained all the time. So it's necessary, I think, to see Jesus's humanity in this passage. But, but you may wonder why. Why do we need to hammer and why do we need to hone in on Jesus being truly man? We recognize in the scriptures that he's truly man and truly God. But what would not be the case if he wasn't truly man? Some of you may use what's called the New City Catechism to help catechize your kids or to instruct your kids. The New City Catechism, like our children use in their uh, children's ministries here on Sunday morning, New City Catechism question 21 asks anyone to answer, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And it says there, one who is truly man and one who is truly God. We see this truth not only from the catechism, but really the truth from the scriptures in Isaiah 9, where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But don't overlook the fact, as awesome as those descriptors are, he came as a child. He was born a son. The catechism goes on in question 22, why must the Redeemer be truly human? So the Redeemer must be truly man and truly God, but why must he be truly human? This is in many ways what this text is trying to amplify Jesus' humanity to us as. And the answer is that in the nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. You see there the, the pressuring tension that is built on Jesus that not only is he coming to us as fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man, but he also, in order to be our redeemer, has to be perfect in his humanity. And you might think of all the ways you could not be perfect in your humanity or it may even not be just level 10, but level nine or even level five of a good person. And Jesus has to be obedient. 
and fulfill the law and be everything that Adam was supposed to be or everything that Israel or David were supposed to be? The Westminster Larder, Larger Catechism said it was requisite that the Redeemer should be man, that he might advance our nature. I love that. Advance our nature. Perform obedience to the law. Suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. Have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, meaning what you are going through. He's not above feeling that. That we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people or appeasing the sins of the people in the eyes of God. So when we come to a text like this and we see Jesus' temptation, you might be tempted even to think that, well, that's different than what I go through. But you've got to recognize that truly God and truly man was here being sought after by the devil himself. The Bible cries out for a representative to take the place of man, one better than Adam and one better than Israel, one who is like us in every respect but needs to be sinless in all of his being. And we have Jesus, truly man, truly God, and he's here hungry and weakened. What a better time for Satan to strike. You might be weary of one of your kids really growing in the faith because in many ways you recognize that at that growth spurt in the faith, you recognize that's exactly where Satan wants him, right? He wants to topple him over. I was just a kid. Well, it was a long time ago when the Dallas Cowboys were good at football, right? But I vividly remember the Dallas Cowboys in the Super Bowl and one of the linesmen picked up a football and was running towards the end zone and they were already winning, but this is like the icing on the cake. And all of our cowboy heroes were out there just chanting and yelling. And what does he do right before he gets to the end zone? He starts celebrating by holding the ball out. And someone comes and knocks it out of his hands. Like you are the worst NFL player ever when you do that. And in many times, Satan wants us to get so close to that end zone. He wants us to grow so much to where he can just knock us over and try to inspire us to think that God doesn't love us. And here we have the Son, the very Son, just to receive confirmation from the Father that you are my beloved and I am pleased in you. And what does Satan do right there? He wants to bring Satan down. So what a testimony to us. So let's look at Jesus' temptations. We see the humanity of Jesus or Jesus' manhood. Now let's look at the temptations here in the text. There are three major temptations here. Obviously in verse 1 or verse 3 is the first there we see the temptation of the heart where we see this echoing effect of be true to yourself or do what you please, do what you want. Nobody will love you if you don't love, your, love yourself first. Remember hearing that in third grade all the time. No one will love you unless you love yourself. And it's like, I, don't, I mean, I'm in third grade. I don't even know what that means. Now that I'm graduated from third grade, I know that that's not necessarily the case. Here, Satan questions the identity of the son. He basically says, if you're the son, prove it. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan is questioning God, the father's care for Jesus, the son. Satan is questioning God's goodness 
in providing for a son. And Satan is tempting Jesus to think the very same. Does God care for me? Will God provide for me? Does God have my benefit at his forefront? He is prodding at Jesus's hunger, finds the very vulnerability of where Jesus is. Imagining not eating for five days and someone saying, would you like this piece of bread? You would say, of course I would like that piece of bread. Imagine that amplified 40 days now. And he's offering, saying, Jesus, if you're truly the Son of God, turn that rock into bread. Like how, we, like how he used the food in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve to, to wonder, does God really care for me? If God really cared for me, why would he have a, a tree of knowledge that I can't have? Doesn't God want me to know those things? He's offering Jesus a different path on his own, isn't he? He's offering Jesus a path that, according to Satan, is actually really good and really beneficial. And all you have to do is turn the rock into bread. Now, what's the big deal? Just turn the rocks into bread. We, we see later on in the scriptures where Jesus will do all kinds of miracles, right? Turning a rock into bread will be nothing compared to forgiving people of their sins. Or on top of all the other miracles that Jesus will do. Satan isn't saying Jesus should steal or lie or even displace things. This isn't like high crimes or misdemeanors. But Jesus is on a mission here. And what's interesting when you think about this, the mission that Jesus is on is actually the mission of the Father. Does Jesus believe that the Father will provide for him? Remember, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. What would it cost Jesus to do this miracle and eat? He'd be doubting God's provision for him. He'd be taking matters into his own hands. He would be wanting the Father's will to actually be his own will instead of following the Lord. He would be tempted to follow his own heart. We see, secondly, another temptation in verse 6, where it says, And said to him, If you are the Son of God, Jesus now takes, or Jesus is now taken to the pinnacle of the temple. So we see here we're starting on the ground, and then you'll see the elevation change throughout the story. Jesus is taken to the top of the temple. We'd imagine him looking out over everything, and Satan saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, meaning plunge yourself off the side of the temple. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil here quotes scripture. This is where it gets pretty intense. The devil here is not only quoting scripture, he also quotes scripture correctly. This is where it's even more intensified than what Satan did in the garden because what Satan did in the garden was take a command by God and turn it into a question so that Eve would think, does God really love me? And here, Satan is directly quoting from the scriptures, wanting Jesus to test God like Eve, like Israel in the wilderness, to stop believing that God would provide If God is really loving you, Jesus, you'll throw yourself off and the angels will scoop you up. Let's really see if you're the son of God. Do the angels even serve you? This is spiritual blackmail. If I do this, then God will do this. You see, we we see that we kind of do this often in our lives. If If we live a certain way and we do a certain thing, then God must do X, Y, or Z. If I do this or that, then God must provide for me. Satan doesn't misquote scripture here, but he does misapply 
Scripture. This is the birth of many false religions misapplying what the Scriptures clearly talk about. He wants Jesus to doubt God's protection. First, it was provision. Would he provide for Jesus? But now, would he protect Jesus? Does God love his son so much that if the son threw himself over the balcony, that, well, that the Lord would provide and scoop him up? He's quoting here from Psalm 97. Satan should have read further on of what it says in Psalm 91, not, not, not 97. So turn back to Psalm 91 if you have a copy of the Bible. Turn back to Psalm 91. We see there the passage that Satan is quoting from here in our text. It says in Psalm 91, verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But what should have Satan read further if he really had God's glory in mind? Look at verse 13 of Psalm 91. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. The mere image that this portrays to us is, is what do you think of whenever you hear about a serpent in the Bible? Think of a devil, right? What do you think of whenever you hear about a lion in the Bible? You think about the Lord, right? Here we have this case where the devil should have heard these words from the Psalms as it was talking about him where a promise would come, where under the foot of the Messiah would the serpent be trampled. Yet he quotes Psalm 91, trying to trick Jesus, trying to tempt Jesus to do something that Jesus didn't want to do. And we see Jesus defending himself and God's glory, but we also see a third temptation here in verse 8. In verse 8, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. So he started on the ground and then to the top of the temple. And now we see up in the air. Now maybe this is a vision that he's showing. Maybe he kind of zoomed in all the kingdoms of the world. We see this temptation of power and strength up in elevation where Satan is up in the stakes. First it was about sustenance. And then it was about security. And now here it's about strength, offering Jesus glory that is bound by his hands and bought not by death, but by a gift from the devil. People have sold their souls for much less, where if Jesus would just bow down and worship the devil, then Jesus could have all of the kingdoms of the world. You would think of what you would give to be the ruler of all the world or to have all the riches Satan is just saying, if you just bow down and worship him, you can have that. That's what he's saying to Jesus. Now, you might think, how in the world can Satan offer all these things? Who is Satan in order to offer these to Jesus himself? Well, we know that in John 14, where Jesus is called, or when Satan is called the ruler of the world. Or we remember in 2 Corinthians 4, where Satan is called a god of the world, where Satan has in some way, ownership of this world, that under God's allowance, he has a lot to offer Jesus, yet Jesus remains resolute. Now, the irony of this passage is just remembering that Jesus isn't just truly man, but truly God. And here is Satan offering Jesus everything before Jesus's eyes. And why this is in many ways a mere joke, I just want to encourage you to turn to the book of Colossians, in chapter 1, where it says in verse 
15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's talking about Jesus in this passage. All of the things that anyone could ever see were from him. And yet, it's Satan who is offering Jesus all of those things if he would just bow down and worship him. You see the tyranny of Satan at work here and even the the own temptation on Satan's own soul. Jesus will be exalted in this text, but not like how Satan wants. We see that Jesus will be held up, but not in the ways that Jesus or that Satan would desire. So we have these three temptations. They're unique to Jesus. They challenge his identity, but what they all have in common is a sense of doubt. They all want Jesus to doubt who God is. They also have a similarity in disobedience. Satan wants Jesus to disobey the will of the Father, but Jesus wants to do the will of the Father. They also have dependence in mind, where Satan wants Jesus to not depend on the Father for everything. Not just this or that, but he, you think of the world expanse that he shows them. Not just the rock on the ground or the temple in the air or the kingdoms in the sky. He wants Jesus to depend on himself and not the Father. We see provision and protection and power that the Father has being on display here and being longed for here. Satan wants Jesus to disobey God's word and to be dependent on himself and on Satan. Now, you might pause here and reflect and wonder, is, is Jesus really under the same kind of temptation that we would read into this text? I mean, he is the son of God, right? He is the Messiah. He is truly God and truly man. So is it really difficult for Jesus to, to flee temptation? Let me ask you this. If you've ever lifted weights, is it harder to lift weights or to not lift weights? If you've ever run, is it, is it hard to keep running or is it hard to stop? Here we have Jesus living, enduring all temptation. In 40 days and after 40 nights when he is hungry, bread is being offered before him. You don't think that that was tense? Just because he is fully man and fully God, don't you know that that bread looked appetizing to him? Yet in his goodness and in his glory, he had the Father's will as more important than anything else in his life. So yes, he's truly God and he cannot sin. There's nothing in the world that can make him sin. You might come up with the logical form of can God make a rock too heavy that even he can lift? That's, that's not what we're talking about here. That's illogical in its total effect. Jesus can't sin, yet Jesus was truly tempted. So we can recognize this and let it apply to our own lives and recognizing that the Son of God acted a certain way towards temptation. So we see here Jesus's responses intertwined in this text. Now, if you're reading this passage and you study the Bible all the way through, you might have something triggered in your mind of all these things that are creeping up in forms of three. Let me remind you of what the Shema of Deuteronomy is about. The Shema is a Hebrew word for listen. We see this as a prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it begins, Hear, O Israel, meaning there is instruction coming out. 
But in many ways, when we see this text, the Shema is like the anti-temptations. If you would, turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. The book of Deuteronomy, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you know the jingle, it's fine to sing it under your breath. Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Remember what Satan was after in that first temptation? The heart of man. And with all your soul, or with all your life, when Satan wanted Jesus to throw himself over, would God actually save Jesus' life? And with all your might. Remember what Satan was offering Jesus? All the power and strength in the world. So we see how this text is really the anti-Shema and what Satan was offering Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The Shema is about everything that we are to be, say, or do. It's not just about listening, but about obeying. And Satan wants Jesus to sidestep pure obedience and to take matters into his own hands. Ultimately, he is wanting Jesus to sidestep the very reason that Jesus came. He wants Jesus to sidestep the cross. What was the will of the Father? For the Father loved in such a way that he sent his Son to do what? Satan wants to distract Jesus from this fight. But praise God, we see Jesus led by, the, led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit in perfect obedience. So we see a series of rebukes, three rebukes. First one is in verse 4. Jesus rebukes Satan, and it says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3 where finally a son, a faithful son is here. Finally a son who is better than Adam or Abraham or Joseph or Israel or David. Finally a son who with all of his all is trusting the the Father to provide in everything. Jesus isn't going to be led by Satan to be a street artist where he'll do whatever kind of miracle you want if you just slip him a one or hand him a five. He'll just, you know, play an instrument here or draw a drawing here. Oh, you want me to make bread out of a rock? I can do that too. Like he's not some kind of weird genie. None of these works that Jesus would do are self-serving. But all of the miracles and all of the works, you think about everything that Jesus did was not for his own glory, but for the glory of the Father. His miracles aren't for show, but lovingly reversing the curse that we are all living in. And Satan wanted him to step outside of that. He takes the word out of his heart that he had hidden and used it to say, I will trust God with my heart. It's better to be in God's will and hungry, Jesus would show, than to be full at the table of the world's shallowness. He trusts the will of the Father, and he loves God's will with all of his heart. His second answer we see, his second rebuke is in verse 7. It says, Jesus said to Satan again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Imagine going to a professor or a teacher. And for those of you who are still in school, I'm not saying you do this. But imagine going to a professor at the very first day of the class and say, hey, I'm excited for microbiology, 
But here's actually a test for you. I want you, teacher, to to take a test. And if you pass it, then I'll go ahead and take the class. Imagine doing that. Well, imagine what the teacher would say. That's what Satan wants Jesus to do to the Father. He wants Jesus to test the Father. Satan wants you and me to test the Father's provision, his providing, his love, his care. He wants us to put God on trial. And if God survives, then maybe we can have him. But instead, we know that God is never on trial because he is the author of everything good. And Jesus wasn't playing Satan's games in that case. We see thirdly here in verse 10, where Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, where he says, Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan, remember, raised the stakes. He put in front of Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. Satan is all in on what, Jesus, what he wants Jesus to do. But what is he really offering to Jesus? He's really offering slavery, bondage to the world's rule. He's offering temporary glory and isn't This is our testimony of every single sin that we place ourselves in. In retrospect, we were enslaved to the ways of the world. We thought that would bring us satisfaction. We thought that thought or that action would bring us joy, but now it's short-lived and it's empty. Jesus keeps the commands of the Shema where he has no gods except God. He has no idols except the one who is truly to be worshipped. Unlike Egypt and the Israelites where Israel was brought out from Egypt and then what did they quickly do? They quickly started worshipping things that weren't even alive. Like it'd be as dumb as worshipping a trash can now. Oh, how almighty is the trash can because it holds trash. Like what are you doing? And how quickly our hearts are led to things just as ridiculous. Jesus' response is pretty awesome here. What does he say? Be gone, Satan. The irony is that Satan is offering Jesus all power, all of the kingdoms of the world, but it's Jesus who demonstrates it. Because what happens the next verse later? It said, and then Jesus left him. He said, be gone, and he left. So much for someone who could offer the world but not hold back everything that was inside of it. Adam should have done this, shouldn't he? When Adam saw Eve being preyed on by Satan. In some ways, Adam should see a talking snake and cut its head off, but in another way, he should have said, get out. I've named all the animals, and you're a beast of the field. Adam had authority over the snake. Remember the command of the Lord in the beginning of the creation account where man was to subdue the earth, meaning own the earth, till the earth, have ownership over it, have command over what's going on in the field. But what's really going on in that case? Adam wasn't doing the will of God, was he? Adam was seeking what he thought would bring him joy. We, we also see Jesus speak like this amazingly, and it brings people questions of why he did this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Just several pages over Matthew chapter 16. We see Jesus actually say this very thing, but he says this very thing to one of his own disciples. Look at verse, I'll start reading in 22, where it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter was doing this because Jesus was talking about how he was going to soon go to the cross. And Jesus was saying, or uh, Peter was saying, No, Jesus, don't do this. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
Now, you know the love that Peter had with that. He didn't want his Savior, his Messiah, to die like Jesus would die. But what does Jesus say? Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was trying to go to the cross, and Peter was trying to get Jesus from going to the cross. And this is what Satan wanted. What we see here is that anything that keeps Jesus from the cross is satanic. Anything that keeps the cross out of the message of Christ. You think about what what does Satan want you to know when you think about Jesus? That he didn't love you, that he didn't die for you, that he's not who he really says he is. Anything that keeps the cross out of the message of Christ is satanic. Anything in our lives, here this is where this applies, anything in your life that detracts you from the word, work, and witness of Jesus isn't the will of the Father, it's the will of Satan. So when we think of what should I do here or what's my next step or what is the will of the Father, what is God's will in my life, anything in life that detracts from the word, work, and witness of Jesus is satanic. Men, doing things to yourselves or watching things on your own is not just damaging to your own soul, but is disrupting the witness both internal and external, the very witness of God's provision and goodness for you. He is saying, that is not good for you. Do not look at it. Do not touch it. And you might be tempted to think, I want it. I need it. I have to have it. It's exactly what Jesus was offered by Satan. Don't flee. Women, feeling the weight of comparison, living not only depletes, from your soul's life, but actually distracts you from the very love of God that has been given to you from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, feeling the weight of comparison living, meaning you might look around, and this is men too, I don't know why I singled out women here. When you look around and you think, my life isn't like hers, God doesn't love me, that's Satan talking to you. When you look around and go, I wish it was like this, Maybe if it was, then maybe I would be on the good plan of God's righteousness. And it's just Satan whispering into you. Remember what Satan did to Eve? Came right up to her and said, doesn't God want more for your life? No. God wants exactly for your life of what he gives you. Are there any areas of your life that are cross-free? Are there any areas of your life that are cross-free? Faced with temptation, Jesus loved God more than anything else. And lastly, and in conclusion, let's see Jesus' triumphs here. In verse 11, the devil leaves and the angels come ministering to him. Maybe they brought food with him. We don't really know there. Maybe they had a full buffet on display for him. Finally, he can eat and be ministered to. But either way, we see the love of God of actually living out that psalm that Satan was tempting Jesus with where the angels actually did minister and lift up the very son who would trample over the serpent. This too shows the humanity. This too shows the divinity. The devil left the presence of Jesus. Righteousness would have no desire to be in the midst of darkness. 
This also fulfills the scripture as it foretastes of what the angels not only do when they would lift him up and sing to him in our book of Revelation, but also it fulfills scripture and gives us a foretaste of what Jesus will do when he will crush the head of the serpent on the, on the cross. Jesus is from the royal line we see in Matthew. He was born a miraculous, of a miraculous birth. The divine takes to himself humanity in a scene and testified to as the delivered Messiah. He was baptized to identify with sinners, be fueled with the Spirit and confirmed by the Father. And here he sends Satan running. That's what he was fueled for. And that's what he continues to do. Jesus was a trusting son, an obedient son. His triumph is astounding and exemplary to us. It's an example to us. He's the example to our wandering, burdened souls. Not just what did he do, but but where did he place his trust? What was he trying to do as he was walking? This passage shows us that he was trusting and obeying You remember the hymn, when we walk with the Lord in light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and will all who will trust and obey. This passage shows us the will of the Father as it will be by the Spirit to carry the Son to the cross for the forgiveness of sinners. And Satan hated this desperately and he will keep trying to attack Christ and will keep trying to attack the Son of Man. So what about you? You have two characters in this passage. You have Satan and the Son of Man. One will tempt you. One will not. Will you act like one or the other? Will you aim to defame God's glory? Or will you aim to do the will of the Father? One character is self-centered, and one is one of devotion and trust. May God's word be like a shield to our hearts. May God's will be the aim to our souls. May God's strength be the power that we cling to in times of deep temptation and trial. Let's pray.